This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for August 12, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, news intern Katherine Irving. We're going to talk about catching cougars on camera, killing donkeys in the desert. Also this week, researcher Paul Feinstein discusses a science signaling paper on a new approach to matching up smell receptors with smells, a long-standing challenge in olfaction research. Now we have news intern Catherine Irving. She wrote about cougars feeding on feral donkeys in Death Valley. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. I think we should start with the fact that people don't really like these donkeys. They're not sad that cougars are eating them. Why are they not well-liked? Well, <laughs> there's a couple reasons. So feral donkeys are actually not native to the United States. They came to the Americas in the 1500s, and then they started really spreading in the Southwest in the 1800s with the mining boom. And so then they kind of escaped and became feral and have been a problem in the United States ever since. Prior to this Pleistocene extinction, there were actually wild horses in the Americas, but those wild horses went extinct in the Pleistocene. So the study authors are kind of saying that since then, there's been this gap, this absence of these large megafauna, and that by bringing in these wild horses and donkeys again, we're kind of recreating what was lost. And potentially, these donkeys are filling a role that has been absent from the ecosystem for a while. So that's why we call them feral and not wild. That's right, yeah. So like wild horses, which I guess for some reason get to be called wild instead of feral most of the time. So like wild horses, they're not necessarily native to the United States. And as a result, people kind of thought they have no natural predators so they can kind of multiply and take over the landscape and dominate these non-native species. Like in Death Valley, for instance, the bighorn sheep, which is a lot smaller than the donkey. So they kind of get <laughs> angled out by these bigger, more obnoxious animals. Yeah, donkeys kind of have a, a stereotype about being pretty stubborn, a little bit sassy. They do. Yeah. I was speaking to one of the people that I interviewed who's a horse person um, and, and she was telling me that horses have two fears. They're afraid of things that move and they're afraid of things that don't move. <laughs> Whereas in contrast, donkeys are afraid of nothing. So they really are personality wise a little bit more difficult to manage than <laughs> the much more fearful equids. So they're competing with some of the native animals there that are about the same size. What, for food, for resources? Are they bad for the environment? Do we know? Yeah. In Death Valley, at least, where there isn't very much water and there isn't a ton of food, the donkeys are kind of ruining the spring water by <laughs> trampling around all this vegetation and also pooping a lot in the water. So they're kind of <laughs> polluting the spring water that the other animals need. And they're eating a lot of the vegetation that, that the bighorn sheep and native tortoises usually eat. 
Now, getting onto the headline of your story, this is something along the lines of cougars caught on tape killing donkeys for the first time. So this was a surprise. We didn't know that a cougar would eat a donkey in Death Valley. Right. Yeah. So nobody had really officially confirmed it. There had been some sort of anecdotal evidence about it in the past. People had seen donkey carcasses near cougar tracks or cougar scat before, and they'd seen donkey carcasses cached, which is where cougars kind of stow away their carcasses to come back to them later. So there was sort of this anecdotal evidence that it maybe had been happening, but people hadn't really been able to tell for sure. So that's kind of where this camera trap evidence came in. I noticed you did not embed video of a cougar eating a donkey in your story. Right. Yeah. So there was a whole camera sequence of the cougar sort of attacking the donkey, but not necessarily a video. So there's pictures of what's actually going on. So we see the initial cougar leaping on the donkey, and then we see the donkey on the ground and and the cougar sort of dragging it around. So these photos, you know, catching a cougar, catching a donkey, suggests to some researchers that these equids might be more integrated into the ecosystem than was previously thought, that donkeys might even be part of a trophic cascade. Can you explain what that is? A trophic cascade is the situation where a predator at the top of the ecosystem controls uh, level by level all of these other trophs, these different levels of the food chain, essentially. So by the predator hunting a prey animal, it affects every other part of the ecosystem down to the littlest blades of grass. So for instance, the wolves in Yellowstone are kind of this famous example where when wolves were reintroduced, they started hunting the elk again. And when they started hunting the elk again, they started to become a lot more fearful of these areas where they'd been previously predated. And so by doing that, they stopped eating as much of the vegetation in those areas And a lot of the other animals were able to come back now that they had more vegetation to eat. And so the study authors of this particular paper were thinking, oh, well, maybe this could be happening with these cougars and these donkeys and this ecosystem. And so then they decided to say, well, are the donkeys doing any of these behaviors that we saw in the Yellowstone? Like, are they changing their eating habits when cougars are are eating them? Yeah, that's sort of an ecology principle called the landscape of fear, (laughs) which I love. I love that name, the landscape of fear. Um, It's so evocative. Love it. So yeah, it basically means that prey animals remember where it is that their brethren have been killed before or where they've seen their predator before and they learn to fear those areas and they don't spend as much time in those areas. Was there a difference between, you know, spots where cougars lurked around and cougars were not in terms of how donkeys were behaving? Yes, there was a big difference. So in areas where the cougars weren't around, which was usually areas that were kind of closer to campsites, in those areas, the donkeys were spending a lot more time in the sites that were being monitored. So they were spending around five and a half hours on average at a time in these wetland sites, eating and drinking whatever water was there. And they were coming around all hours of the day, in the daytime, in the nighttime. But then in these areas where the cougars were known to be present, the donkeys were, they did not stick around. They were there for about an average of 40 minutes at a time, which is a considerably shorter length of time. And they only really came around during the daytime, which is when cougars hunt less often. So it was clear that the cougar presence was affecting the way that they interacted with these wetlands. And that could downstream, if you will, change how much stomping and pooping they're doing in these places that are vital to other animals that live in this ecosystem. 
Right, exactly. So the study authors found that in the areas where cougars were present and the donkeys were around less often, that there was a greater diversity of vegetation and less evidence of trampling. So the donkeys were not ruining these wetlands as much when cougars were around. Mm -hmm. So this seems like a good piece of evidence that maybe there is a trophic cascade like in Yellowstone that's happening here in Death Valley with donkeys and cougars. But as of now, the donkey population is being taken apart or removed by the Park Service because it's seen as damaging. Yes. So the Park Service's goal is to remove all of these donkeys. They're sending a lot of them off to this donkey sanctuary to stay at that sanctuary or to be adopted out to people who want donkeys. So that's the current goal is for them to have zero donkeys in the park because of these damaging effects that they're seeing. The study authors are very much of the opinion that, you know, knowing that these cougars are hunting these donkeys and and keeping them from destroying wetlands, that perhaps they don't really need to be removed after all, at least entirely. What will cougars eat if they don't have donkeys to eat? So it's possible that they would go back to eating more bighorn sheep. And the bighorn sheep, not necessarily just in Death Valley, but across the country are being impacted by climate change and disease. So it's unclear how this increased predation from cougars would necessarily change that or whether it would hurt their population even more or if removing the donkeys would be enough in itself to help the population. So (laughs) as is the way with many things in ecology, the effect of removing one animal or adding one animal, people have no idea what will happen next. That's true. Is this trophic cascade paper or perhaps cougars eating donkeys or either of those enough to convince people managing this land not to take the donkeys off? It doesn't seem to have had that effect. The Park Service seems to still be adamant that they want to eventually remove all of these donkeys. And I think part of their reasoning is that donkeys, which are this domesticated species, have sort of been evolved over thousands of years to reproduce a lot more than, for instance, bighorn sheep do. And so as a result, their populations grow pretty fast. The Park Service estimates that they grow around 20% each year, which is kind of crazy. And even though cougars in Death Valley are protected under law, which means that there are a lot more of them there than in an average place, the Park Service isn't sure that having enough cougars hunting donkeys is going to be enough to keep them in check. So the current plan is to still get rid of them. Really interesting. And they have hung around for hundreds of years. Yeah, I know. They're clearly very resilient. They're so funny. They're like these big, scruffy animals with these giant ears, and they're living in such a a desolate landscape. Um, You wouldn't imagine that something that large and (laughs) of that size would be able to exist so well in Death Valley, but they're thriving there, which I think is a a testament to their, their resilience and their stubbornness. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. Of course. Thank you. Catherine Irving is a Diverse Voices intern for the Science News Team and a freelance journalist focusing on wildlife and geosciences. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Paul Feinstein on a new way to decode the nose. Humans have around 400 genes that code for odorant receptors. These are structures in the nose that respond to chemicals and basically instigate the sense of smell. Figuring out what each one does has been a big challenge in olfaction research. This week, Science Signaling published a paper that describes a way to match up odors and their receptors. Paul Feinstein, one of the authors of the work, is here to talk about it. 
Hi, Paul. Hi. Why has this been such a tough problem, figuring out what odors, what molecules bind to these receptors? You asked the critical question, why has it been so difficult? The short answer is these genes or proteins that they make, for some reason, and we still don't understand 30 years after they were discovered, can't be analyzed in a laboratory setting. So in a cell line, et cetera. This has been crippling to the field. I don't think people really realize how different the sense of smell is from, say, detecting heat or light, which are kind of on a spectrum. Can you talk a little bit about what's so different about odor detection for people and and animals? For olfaction, we have 400 genes, but chemical structure does not parse out very nicely on a spectrum has two main degrees of freedom. You you might think of every bond as a new degree of freedom. I don't even know the number, but I assume there are over 20 million chemical structures that exist. And there are just too many degrees of freedom to be able to map that in some sort of linear pattern. We can break them down into groups like uh, amines or carboxylic acids, et cetera. But even then, they don't break down very nicely because One end of the molecule could bind to one receptor and the other end of the molecule could bind to another receptor. When we say, oh, there's 400 genes for these receptors, it's not a one receptor, one chemical system, right? There's actually, they respond to different molecules. That's correct. And we still don't really understand how perception occurs, but there's growing amounts of data that suggest the highest affinity receptor carries the signal for the percept. So for example, we can just pick on vanillin. We're actually studying it in the lab. If there's one receptor for vanillin that's very high affinity, it will carry the weight of vanillin in my mind. There's some debate about this in the field. But as you you increase the concentration, you're going to begin to tap other receptors that are lower affinity, which will carry other information channels. So now it won't smell just like vanilla. It'll smell like maybe sweet, smoky maybe. It'll start tapping other receptors that are more geared for high affinity ligands for those receptors. Before we get into what you did here, what you made, what changes you made, Can you walk us through what we know about odor detection process, kind of the general steps from outside the body to inside the brain? The way the sense of smell works is you inhale odors either into your nose or into your mouth. That's how we smell the vast majority of our odors is we breathe them in through our mouth and they go retronasal to the olfactory epithelium. Once in the epithelium, they parse into the mucus layer and eventually tickle, as you you earlier described, the protein that it binds to, which is the odorant receptor. Tickling the odorant receptor causes a cascading event in a very important structure called the olfactory cilia, which are sort of hanging out in the mucus in the nasal cavity. Once these are tickled and they're activated, an electrical signal is sent directly to the olfactory bulb, which is in the brain. And that signal is then interpreted by the brain. So let's get into what the study was about here. We highlighted early on that it hasn't been really possible to express these receptors in a, you know, a cell-free system or in a basic cell system. So 
you focus on the cilia, this part of the cell that hangs out in the mucus and has the receptors on it. What did you do? How did you use that to better target and understand the odorant receptors? This is actually a great question. Something that's sort of been my little passion project for decades now. So in the 90s, genetic manipulation became commonplace and we were able to put odorant receptors into the mouse genome and they would eventually get expressed in the olfactory epithelium. And they would be trafficked to the olfactory cilia. They would do all their jobs. So it became clear you could modify the olfactory epithelium at will to express any receptor. The only problem is, Sarah, is that there are 10 million neurons in the olfactory epithelium of mice, but there are a thousand receptors. Oh, so we are not seeing a lot of any one kind. There are only 10,000 cells per receptor. So this makes it daunting to study even a human receptor. Even if you want to put in mice, you're stuck with one in 10,000 cells. And though it's doable to analyze like that, it's painful. Yeah. It's a lot of work. So around 2010, I identified what I call a gene choice enhancer that was able to co-op the olfactory epithelium. So if I put now a genetically modified odorant receptor gene into an animal, instead of having it expressed in 10,000 cells, I could have it expressed in 500,000 cells or 2 million cells. Just to pause there, does that mean the mouse can basically only smell vanillin? It doesn't wipe away the others, but it will more readily respond to the receptor that's more common. Okay. And I racked my brain and I thought back to an old 1986 paper by Sklar, Pamela Sklar, where she had shown that you could isolate olfactory cilia from animals and you could elicit the signaling event. And then I married my idea for overrepresenting one receptor with the cilia prep thinking that now if 2 million out of 10 million cilia represent one receptor, it should give a robust signal for the ligands that it responds to. So you're able to isolate the cilia and then look at what it's responding to. What we do is actually we generate the same second messenger, cyclic AMP, and then we use kits that are commercially available to break open the cilia and then quantify how much cyclic AMP was made. So you can see what molecule is stimulating the receptor that you express. You're able to measure that by an increase in cyclic AMP. Correct. And now, did you do that with multiple kinds of receptors or multiple kinds of molecules? Yes, actually, we only published two receptors in the science signaling paper. I think we have almost up to a dozen receptors that we've been analyzing with odors and receptors. The difficult part is not making the animals. The difficult part is creating a large repertoire of odors to interrogate the receptors. Making the odors is the hard part? I mean, you do need to have like 400 transgenic mice though, right? Sure. It's the delivery of the odors. So if you do liquid delivery, which is what most in vitro scientists do for, let's say, dopamine, serotonin, they're all liquid delivery. That's fine up until a certain concentration. What we found was that the cilia begin to get damaged if you go too high in concentration. So you have to go low concentration. So that's part one. Part two is 
they're not very soluble, the odor. So you're actually better off doing vapor phase delivery. And doing vapor phase delivery on, let's say, 1,000 or 10,000 odors is a daunting setup to make. Optimally, what I, my dream would be is we'll break it down instead of 10,000 odors, we'll say 2,000 odors that are commonly used in foods and flavor and fragrances. So if you took 2,000 and you matched them to all 400 receptors, what we'd optimally like to know is what is the high affinity odor for each receptor? And then once we know that, then you go interrogate the others to see if they can bind or be activated at such a high affinity. Now, would you have all 400 expressed and laid out and then you put different odors on that set of 400 or would you go one at a time? The work, it needs to be done either way, but I think it's probably easier to take one receptor. One animal can generate 4,000 wells worth of data. So in theory, we don't need a lot of animals to do this work. You need a lot of smells, not a lot of animals. Yeah. You need the odors, right? 2,000 odors, you'll do them in triplicate. That's 6,000 assays. Okay, maybe that's two animals. So it's not the number of animals now that is preventing us. It is the way to interrogate the samples with 2,000 odors. We could do them all at liquid delivery as a first step, and that's what we would do. And then essentially, we'd start cataloging. Okay, receptor X responds highly to odor one through five. And so you wouldn't do something where you have all 400 and then you just bring in some bacon <laughs> and you cook the bacon and then you see the entire experience of bacon across all of your receptors. We could do that for flavor and fragrance fingerprinting. If you wanted to fingerprint bacon, you would certainly do that. So is that one of the outgrowths of this? So once you've nailed down what you see as the high affinity binding for all these different receptors, then you can look across how they act in all these different situations? Absolutely. Our main grant that we're working on these days is um, there turns out to be probably an odor associated with the onset of Parkinson's disease. And this is what we're focused on in the lab these days, which is we would like to identify a series of receptors that could distinguish the odor of people who are predisposed to Parkinson's disease versus those who are not. People have done studies where they use a dog to smell samples to see, to discriminate people who have illnesses. But is this also a step towards a mechanical nose where if you've identified the odorant molecules that signal Parkinson's, then you can build something that's more durable than cells in a dish, cilia in a dish. That's exactly right. These cilia, as we suspect it, could be frozen for a long period of time. We're up to maybe 18 months, over one year. So without losing significant efficacy. So here we just go to the freezer, pull out a sample, and we start working. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah, so much for having us on. It's been a real pleasure. Paul Feinstein is a professor of biology in the Department of Biological Science at Hunter College. Special thanks to Masayo Omura for her help with this interview. You can find a link to the science signaling paper we discuss at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast. 
or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and his publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.